Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, we'll look at a subject that's on the minds of many economists as well as everyday consumers. What's up with inflation? Are recent sharp increases something to be concerned about? And how does it affect our economic future? We'll also assess the outlook for jobs, wages, and overall economic growth. To guide us through these issues, our guest will be Robert Carroll, former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Tax Analysis of the U.S. Treasury Department and currently co-leader of the Ernst & Young Quantitative Economics and Statistics Group, known as Quest. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman will join me for the conversation. Well, Bob and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Thanks so much, Bob. Bob, there are certainly a number of topics that we could get into and that we will get into regarding the economy, but why don't we start out with just a, you know your basic overview take on where the uh, the economic uh, recovery is. We, we got some news this week that officially the recession is over. I think we all knew that, but uh, it was officially declared the, sh the shortest recession in history and it, it ended in April of last year. So we've been recovering since then and, and about where are we on that path right now? You know, the, yeah, we're, we're in a very robust economic recovery. When you look at the the economy overall, it's, it's, it's been doing remarkably well, uh, particularly since uh, the first of the year. Of course, this is a pandemic that became an economic crisis, um, an economic recession. Um, the, as, as, the, uh, as COVID and the pandemic recedes, at least in the United States, more into the background, not completely, of course, but more into the background, the economy is able to, to really take off and, and recover. Um, you know, one thing to say about the recovery is a, a lot of the economic news really beginning last May has been much more positive than a lot of economists had anticipated. So we've had you know, a series of um, you know, good report cards, if, if, you, if you will. Um, the economy has just been, been performing real well. The, um, you know, we have uh, expectations of growth for this year in the 6 to 7% uh, real, uh, uh, real GDP growth for this year. Four to five percent next year. Uh, the growth prospects in the second quarter. The you know that's now in the rearview mirror, but the expectation is that that the, the economy probably grew about nine percent on a real annualized basis in the second quarter. We're expecting real uh, growth in the in the current quarter to be be around um, uh, you know eleven percent. Well, I'm sorry, eleven percent in the second quarter and uh, about nine percent this quarter. Again, the six to seven percent overall. Um, again, falling to the four to five percent range next year. Um, you know, typically, uh, the economy grows at a 1.8 to 2 percent rate when we're at full employment and all the resources in the economy are fully employed. So we are we're growing at a very rapid pace right now. 
Um, and, and just to put two, th two other data points to put this into perspective, two things, two kind of metrics that some people have looked at is what were the point in time when the, the level of GDP exceeded the pre-pandemic level of GDP. Um, a year ago, the thought was is that would not occur until the summer of 2022. Then as the forecasts improved, that, that point in time moved to the, to, um, you know, moved into 2020, into 2021. And now, you know, what we know is, is that that time has already passed. Um, you know, in the set first or second quarter, the level of uh, real GDP, you know, exceeded the level of GDP when the pandemic started. Then the other metric to pay attention to is if you look at kind of consensus forecasts of, of where the economy would be today without the pandemic, um, it, it looks like we are now exceeding that level of GDP. The economy has actually expanded to such a point we're above the level of GDP that we would have hit without the pandemic. And that may also already, some already have passed, some, some forecasts have that uh, occurring at about mid-year, at the end of June, early July. Um, you know, but that, that's, that's um, you know, another clear indicator. But there's a lot, still a lot of unevenness in the economy. Those parts of the economy that rely on a lot of uh, interpersonal uh, connection, interaction, you know, uh, the, the hospitality and the travel industries, you know, took, took it, really took it on the chin. They are taking more time to recover. Um, the labor market usually recovers with more of a lag. And so the, the, the labor market is still, um, you know, behind, let's say. Um, uh, employee compensation is above pre-pandemic levels. Consumption is above pre-pandemic levels. The recovery is broad-based. It's, uh, you know, you, uh, consumption, business investment, and housing investment are all kind of humming along and, and uh, you know, performing quite well. But the labor market is the one area where more ground needs to, um, we, we need to cover more ground. We still have about 6.8 million people who were working before the pandemic who are not working now. Uh, and the unemployment rate is now at 5.9%. It's coming down gradually. Uh, the Federal Reserve Board in their forecast has it reaching perhaps in the 4.5% range by year end. Other uh, forecasts have the labor market kind of also uh, kind of coming down to the 4.5 to 5.0% range, maybe a few below that. Uh, the underemployment rate still elevated. The labor force participation rate is, is down uh, by about one and a half points relative to the pre-pandemic levels. That, that's about 3.4, 3.5 million people who have left the labor force. A lot of people on the sidelines. Yeah, you know, um, one of the statistics that uh, seems stubbornly um, high still is the uh, new uh, weekly unemployment claims, um, which are still, you know, post-pandemic, uh, they're still higher uh, even now than they were, you know, before the pandemic hit, much higher, uh, even though we've been having this, uh, this long recovery. And as you said, there's been some robust job growth in, in certain areas. Um, what, what is that signaling to you? Yeah, I think that's, that's sig signaling there's a lot of dissonance in the labor markets still, particularly in certain areas. You know, there's a lot of kind of disconnect, supply not equaling demand in some respects. And, um, you know, a tremendous shock to the economy with the pandemic, tremendous shock to labor markets, the shutting down of the economy and certain industries not being able to get back on their feet very quickly. I mentioned hospitality and travel as, as two of them. 
So what did we have uh, last uh, uh, last Thursday? We had uh, uh, 360,000 uh, new uh, UI uh, claims uh, filed in 2019. The average was around 218, 220 claims a month. So we're still elevated relative to that, that pre-pandemic level. You go back a little bit further uh, in the prior economic expansion, you know, probably UI claims were, were higher than the 220 level. So we've come down a long way, right? At the height of the pandemic, we were at 6.8, 6.9 million UI claims back in in March and April of last year. And the, the, the UI claims numbers, they're a little bit volatile from week to week, but they've come down gradually from the you know, roughly 900,000 million uh, uh, per week range at the end of last year, now coming down to the, you know, kind of the, the, the 300 to 400,000 range per week. They continue to come down. Um, uh, the unemployment benefits are starting to, to tail off the supplemental uh, unemployment benefits in some states, uh, 25 states have decided to end those, terminate those early with the, with the notion that those unemployment benefits, those supplemental benefits, you know, might be um, uh, an impediment to some people going back to work. You know, that's a controversial issue. So I don't want to kind of step in that. But, but in any case, 25 states have ended that early. Uh, so that, that might, might, might also play into this. The remaining 25 states, that program would will, will normally would, would, would end at the end of September, so that um, you know that's that that might be helpful. I, I mentioned kind of the the 6.8 million people who aren't working um, you know today who were working prior to the pandemic. Uh, we've had about a 70 percent of the lost jobs have been re- recouped uh, during the recovery. Again, we still have the other 30 percent uh, to go. And I mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of workers move, did move to the sidelines, um, and it's uh, that's that's. Uh, I, I tend to think that the um, very quick, r- rapid pace of economic growth right now, this year, and through the the remainder of the year, is going to be very helpful to the labor market and to help bring people back from the sidelines. We have seen average hourly earnings uh, ticking up, uh, rising uh, you know, for the last three months. That that's. Uh, has uh, one of the things that's come out in the monthly jobs report is that rise in average hourly earnings. And that may help attract uh, workers back to uh, the labor market. Well, among this, uh, this good news, it is uh, also uh, kicked off some inflation as, uh, as the economy roars back to life and uh, wages are going up, people are going back to work, people are going out shopping again and traveling. And uh, so, um, Tori, I want to bring you into the conversation here, because one of the things that's really getting a lot of attention and uh, debate among economists is the, uh, you know, the role of inflation. And uh, uh, so let's 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 get into that. Tori, you had a, a few questions on that. Yeah, Bob. So, uh, yeah, let's just start with some of the basics. Inflation's been in the news a lot re- recently. Can you tell us a little bit about what what the news has been? Yeah, so inflation is um, as the economy's reopened. Um, uh, you know, there's been kind of an unleashing of pent up demand as as uh, the restrictions ease or they end. Um, there are a lot of supply chain uh, bottlenecks and disruptions. Um, as the again, as the economy opens up, um, there are higher shipping costs. There's kind of elevated demand for certain types of durable goods. Uh, all of that has led to a significant spike uh, in inflation. In addition, um, depending on how you look at the inflation numbers, there are so-called base effects. 
there was kind of a deep de-inflation uh, de that occurred at the kind of the peak of the pandemic last spring. And so when people do the year over year calculations, it, it kind of looks like inflation is worse than perhaps it, it really is. So you, you, kind of, you kind of have a bounce back from the deflation we had last spring. You know, that, that slowly, those base effects slowly work their way out of the system um, as those kind of very low inflation number, those low price index numbers drop out of the year over year calculations, which is, is kind of happening now. Um, even when you take that out, you, we still have an uptick in inflation. No doubt, it's it's higher higher than it typically has been. Um, you know, the CPI in June was up 0.9 uh, percent. The CPI uh, on a 12 month uh, basis uh, over the past 12 months was up 4.5.4 percent. Uh, Core inflation was also up 0.9. Um, it was up 4.5 percent over the last 12 months. The PCI is running a PCE. The, the uh, is even running higher. That is a, a metric that the Fed pays perhaps a little more closer attention to in, in guiding its monetary policy. That's been running around six, seven percent over the last several months uh, overall, or, or on, on the core basis. Inflation is expected to to come down as the supply uh, disruptions work their way through. Um, uh, you, you they get worked out as as the economy continues to recover. Um, you know, the, the, the uh, CPI and PCE index are both expected to, to come back down to the, uh, slightly above the 2% level uh, towards the end of the year or, or into um, uh, next year. Um, that, said, uh, that said, I think it is important to, to observe that um, expectations for inflation, the concern over it is mounting, the, this uh, uh, debate. Uh, or discussion, if you will, of whether it's permanent or transitory, um, you know, it's becoming a bigger question mark than, than it was. Mm-hmm. All right. I want to get back to the permanent versus transitory thing in a second, but I want to drill down. Tori, um, I just, I need to take our first break here uh, and then uh, and then we'll get right back. Uh, so you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Bob Carroll of the Ernst & Young Quantitative Economics and Statistics Group, Quest. We're talking about inflation, jobs, and the economy, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are discussing the outlook for inflation, jobs, and the economy with Bob Carroll of the Ernst & Young Quantitative Economics and Statistics Group, or Quest. Uh, and Tori, you were uh, asking Bob about some inflation questions, so pick it up from there. Sure. Um, Bob, just wanted to talk to you briefly. Uh, we were talking about the, uh, the sources of inflation. What's, what's, what's driving the inflation? We talked a little bit about base effects, which is basically a, a mathematical right explanation right, for, for inflation. But there, I've heard other things mentioned, things like uh, supply chain shortages, real wage increases. You know, some people blame the federal government spending. Can you sort of break down for us what are sort of the, the, the major contributing factors that, that you think uh, are, are driving inflation? Yeah, yeah. If, uh, fundamentally, it's the economy growing at a fast pace, right? Faster than the economy can kind of absorb easily. So at a high level, it's, it's a very fast pace of economic growth. When the economy grows at an 11% rate on a real annualized basis in the second quarter and 9% uh, perhaps this quarter, some estimates are as high as that, or 6 six to 7% overall, it's going to create a lot of um, 
uh, tension within the economy that, you know, uh, supply, supply chain disruption, bottlenecks is kind of code for, uh, you know, that disruption. So you take the housing industry, for example, I think it's a very good example. Uh, last December, um, we ran into a, a shortage of lumber. The housing market was one of the first parts of the economy to begin to recover and recover very robustly back in May, right? The, the pandemic, the shutdown happened in March and April, started some level of reopening in May and the housing market absolutely took off. There's a, a housing index put out by the National Association of Home Builders that, that shows a very uh, steep rise and steady rise in, in, in confidence in the, in the housing uh, uh, sector. Um, and, and we see uh, housing starts going up uh, quite a lot throughout the year. In December, a big spike in lumber prices. And it wasn't that we didn't have enough trees or we couldn't cut down the trees fast enough. You know, that, that wasn't the problem. It was really kind of creating the boards from the trees, kind of the refining of the uh, the refining of, of that, uh, of the trees is where the problem had. Lumber, lumber prices spiked enormously. Housing starts came down a little bit. The housing index kind of came down a little bit and the housing uh, industry hit significant headwinds. And anyone who, anyone who's uh, bought a two by four at a, at a local Lowe's or Home Depot or, or um, uh, you know, anywhere else or anyone who's hired a contractor to do any sort of building a house or a, an extension that involves lumber, there were significant price, price uh, spikes in those construction pro projects that were derivative of the rise in, in lumber or a result of the rise in lumber prices. Last month, lumber prices fell by about 70%, mm -hmm. right? And they fell by 70% because the economy, that industry figured out how to make more boards and get those boards to market. And with that increase in supply, um, the prices have come back down to roughly around pre, there might be slightly above pre-pandemic levels or close to pre-pandemic levels. So that's one, one example of uh, supply chain disruption. You know, it, it happened in, in uh, December, created a problem for industry, worked its way through the economy. Corrected itself. Yeah, it corrected itself. Another supply uh, chain disruption would be the chip shortage. Uh, that we have that's affecting the auto industry. When you look at the rise in the CPI, uh, for example, over the last couple of months, a big, a big portion of the rise is due to the, the spike in the price for used cars. And the 30% the, the of the, uh, the, the rise in the CPI in one of the months, or maybe both of the months was 30, a third of it was due to the rise in the price of used cars. And the price in the used, uh, price of used cars went up because there's a shortage of, you know, there's a scarcity of, of new cars. There's a scarce, scarcity of new cars because of a chip shortage. And the chip shortage takes the form of the auto industry uh, really taking on its on the chin when the economy shut down. Uh, there's a real pullback on purchases of significant durables like cars uh, last spring and over the summer. Um, the chip manufacturers shifted over to making chips for let's say consumer products, electronics, refrigerators, washing machines. And when the, then when there's a recovery in auto demand last fall, uh, there was really, there was still a very high level of demand for consumer products. So the chip companies weren't really able to shift back to um, the types of chips that the auto industry needs to build cars. And so they've had a chip shortage and that's driving a lot of disruption in the auto industry and, and driving inflationary pressures in the auto industry. That one may take longer to resolve. And, and um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that gets resolved. So 
it is going to sound like a naive question, but I think the answer is going to be interesting. You know, is inflation always bad? Because I, I remember back to the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, the big worry was deflation, right? And, sure. uh, I, and, and if you think about the reasons why inflation may be accelerating, if it's, if it's wage push inflation, for example, if, if people are, if employees are getting uh, uh, wage increases that are, uh, you know, real wage increases, so they're, the, right. their, their, their wages are increasing faster than, than inflation, inflation. Um, that that could actually be a good a good thing, right? So I, I just wanted to ask you yeah. for your you know your opinion on is is this necessarily bad inflation and and well it uh, depends, right? It, it depends. Um, it, it really depends. So so a lot of economists um, walk around in, in, with the notion in their heads that an inflation rate of around two percent is probably helpful to the economy. It probably in a sense, it's like the oil in a, in a, in a car engine. It, it's a lubricant that helps things function well. Deflation is, is bad. Inflation is, is bad. You have a degradation of the real value of assets just due to high inflation. But 2% inflation is, is kind of viewed as a, a kind of a, a reasonable, the right amount of oil in the engine, if you will, to use that analogy. Um, here we have um, a spike in inflation due to the supply disruptions and the pent-up demand, a sudden rise in demand because people weren't, weren't, you weren't spending as much for a period of time. They weren't traveling, going on vacations, going to restaurants, going to bars, that, you know, a variety of things, let, let's say. Um, and, and so we have the spike in, in, uh, in prices. The quite, and, and so it's well above the 2% level, right? The, the numbers I rattled off earlier, five, six, 7%. Uh, on an annualized basis, depending on how you measure it. But in any case, very high. The expectations as the supply disruptions we described a bit earlier work their way through uh, the, you know, the, uh, the economy that will, we will, as they resolve themselves, inflation will come back down. The, the Federal Reserve Board is trying to guide things, um, guide monetary policy, uh, you know, guide the economy so that we get back to just above 2%. For a long period of time, for the economic the economic expansion between the global financial crisis and the, the when the pandemic hit, we had a, a rate of inflation that was below two percent. In some some periods during that ten years, it was well below two uh, percent. The Federal Reserve Board has has indicated that uh, it will tolerate a period of high, higher than two percent inflation. Um, you know, uh, so that over a period of time, it, it averages out. To two percent, they had a shift in policy before, just before the pandemic hit. Um, uh, you know, uh, so so we'll, we'll we'll have to see. You know, the Federal Reserve Board is is I think or, or is trying to position itself to to not raise interest rates until they need to, until it's until we have a really have an inflation problem. They don't really see evidence of that yet, based on comments, public comments that Chairman Powell has made in the minutes to the Federal Reserve Board meetings. Um, so that's one level lever. The other lever is the, the roughly $120 billion a month that in securities purchases the Federal Reserve Board is making. Um, there is an expectation that, that the Federal Reserve Board will, and they've signaled this as I understand it, uh, that they may start curtailing those purchases towards the end of this year. Uh, and, and there might be a more um, robust tapering of those purchases uh, next year. And um, you know, and th that th that can also have an effect on, and, and is likely to have an effect on long-term interest rates. 
And just one more thing. I've, I've gone on for a little while. One more thing on this. What's kind of interesting, even though we have very high growth rates and we have um, currently a pretty high inflation numbers, um, you know, uh, long-term interest rates have kind of come down in the last couple of weeks. And mm -hmm. so, so that is that some people are taking that as an indication that we, an indicator that the markets don't view us as currently having a significant long-term persistent inflation problem. You know, I, it, we are kind of in, in uncharted territory here. So everybody's trying to figure out uh, how this how this lands. I guess one of the things that economists worry about, I, I, I'll defer to you on this because I'm not an economist, but but I've always heard that it's not so much inflation, but inflation expectations. Right. That the, right. That's right. That's that, right. That, that the Fed worries about. And and so, uh, you know, I guess and, and nobody knows the answer to this. So I'm just sort That's of right. asking asking your opinion on this. But but when things rise, like, uh, you know, wages rise or, or if things if things are rising and those are good things, but. You know, people notice higher prices on things that they're buying, like used cars or, uh, you know, just groceries and, and, and general consumer goods. And if, uh, if, if, if home prices are rising very fast as, as they are now, particularly in some areas, uh, and, and rents are going up, uh, does that perhaps have a, a risk of locking in an inflation expectation, even if the factors might prove to be transitory. Yeah, that's. I, I think of that as the million-dollar question. It, it you're, you're, the, you know, what I've heard. What I heard you asking is to what extent is what we're seeing now going to affect inflation expectations? Uh, you know, and that plays into is this permanent or transitory? And um, you know, it, it's it's very very hard to say to the extent you can attribute the price increases to specific supply disruptions, lumber in the housing industry, you know, chip shortage in the auto industry. Um, and you can kind of trace through and see that in the CPI increase last month and the month before, a, a significant portion, a share of that price increase can be attributed to the ship uh, shortage, its effect on new and used cars. Then that, that kind of, um, you know, kind of pushes you towards thinking that this might be, that's evidence, I think, at least circumstantial evidence, if not more, that this may well, the, at least a, a chunk of this is, is more uh, uh, transitory. Um, when you look at the jobs report for the last three months, you do see an increase in average hourly earnings. Uh, an increase in real wages is, of course, good for workers. They have their living, our living standards are going up when our real wages go up. An increase in nominal wages, uh, without you know, over and above inflation, you know that that, you know, you want the increase in wages to be over and above inflation, so you have the increase in real wages. But we have had an increase in average hourly earnings for the last three months. It hasn't gotten a lot of attention, um, but 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 it, I think it is noticeable and something to to pay attention to because when I think when the rate rate wage rates go up. Um, that that could be uh, an indicator of a more permanent. Those are not base effects. Because those, those don't are, come back. Those don't. People don't get pay cuts, right? Their wages people tend don't to be get sticky. pay cuts, right? Yeah, yeah. prices go down, but but people's wages do not. And right. that might be an indicator of oh, this might be a little more permanent. So that's something to be watchful of. But but to be clear, rises in real real wages are a good thing. Right. right. Yeah. We right. Like, right. Exactly. Like living standards going up. That's that's the whole point of all of these policies 
is to you know uh, engineer and arise in, in, in living standards as quickly as possible over time. Well, at least that's one, one broad policy objective. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Bob Carroll of the Ernst & Young Quantitative Economics and Statistics Group, Request. We're talking about uh, the outlook for inflation, jobs, and the economy, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are discussing the inflation outlook, jobs, and economic growth with Bob Carroll of the Ernst & Young Quantitative Economics and Statistics Group, or Quest. Tori, you got a, uh, another follow-up question on uh, the policy implications of inflation. Exactly. So we've been talking a lot about an inflation and um, uh, about the, the general economy, what drives inflation. Um, but now I want to talk about uh, how inflation affects the federal budget. Um, you know, there are lots of different ways that, that price, price inflation, wage inflation enters into the, the federal budget, um, most notably on the, on the spending side when it comes to Social Security and Medicare but potentially even on the revenue side. So I was wondering where, where, where you saw inflation having an impact on the federal budget. Yeah, I mean, well, there are, there are COLA adjustments. Social security would be the kind of the prime example. Social security benefits are, are tied to the rise in average wages. Um, and so as average wages rise, as, as I mentioned earlier, the, you know, the rising the last few months, um, you know, the, we would expect social security benefits to, to rise. Yeah, the idea on the spending side is certain benefit programs, we want the, those benefit levels to, to keep pace with inflation. We don't want the real value of those benefits to fall because of uh, inflation. And so the idea is the way those, uh, is to design those programs and they have been designed largely in a, in a manner in which protects people from, um, from inflation so that the real value of their benefits um, you know, doesn't fall. And they, they tend to do it in, in different ways. On the tax side, um, you know, also the um, uh, the income tax system is largely, largely, but not completely, indexed uh, to inflation. The uh, the rate brackets and other 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 parts of the uh, individual income tax system are pegged to you know different indices to uh, so that the rate brackets rise, for example, rise with inflation and uh, keep pace with inflation, which which has the opposite effect on the spending side means the real value of tax payments uh, is, is maintained over time. So uh, uh, and that's something that has been a feature or characteristic of the tax system since the early 1980s when uh, President Reagan and the, the, the Congress back then indexed most of the income tax system. Capital gains is probably one of the areas where it's not indexed for inflation. That hasn't been that much of an issue during periods uh, over the, let's say, the last couple of decades when we've had very low inflation. But if uh, inflation is, is spiking now, and if inflation were to, you know, these levels of inflation were, were to become more permanent, meaning inflation expectations, you know, they get built into expectations, and they remain more permanent, um, then that might become a, a more significant issue. Um, because then when people sell, dispose of, of those assets, they would be taxed, and not only on the, re the rise in the real value of, the, uh, of those assets, but also adjust the rise in value due to inflation. And that's kind of a, it, it distorts uh, decisions in various ways and, and is, is, is not desirable from a policy perspective generally. 
You know, uh, one of the things that is unique about this phenomenon, this economic recovery, as was true of the uh, the brief recession, is that it's it's driven by healthcare, and so and the response to a healthcare crisis. So, you know, a lot of us are used to responding to traditional recessions and the you know the ways that they recover or the policy levers that you use there. But, but in many ways, the healthcare statistics have become economic indicators. <laughs> and, uh, and they've been certainly looking much better since vaccines were distributed in, in great numbers in the spring. Some people are concerned uh, now that there's an inflection point that the vaccine, people taking vaccines has leveled off. And we're noticing a, a rise in cases uh, all over the country, but particularly in, in some spots. Now, it's nothing like it, it was before, but it's, it's enough to cause some people to wonder if a resurgent COVID virus uh, in one form or another might still have some implications on the negative side for the economy. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's absolutely right. You know, first I should preface anything I say about the vaccines. I'm not a I'm not a healthcare professional. I'm not a he- healthcare expert in that regard. Um, you know, uh, you know. But that said, the economic crisis is is a, a result of the pandemic for sure. And the way the recovery has evolved is uh, been shaped by the pandemic and by how we have dealt with the pandemic and and the vaccines are certainly front and center now. And, you know, some, some very, the, the current statistics are, are, are indicators of, of what, what risks might, the economy might face down the road. We have roughly about 50% of the U.S. population, adult population has been fully vaccinated, uh, you know, and about 55, 58% has at least one shot in the arm. And that, that's even that significant because one shard of the arm with some of the vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer give you roughly 80% protection, two shots more like the, the 95% we, we've heard about. And, and so that gets us, you know, pretty, pretty, that, that puts us in a good position. The other thing to, to, I think, to focus on and to ask really, it's more of a question. I don't think we have a good, for whatever reason, we don't seem to have a really good answer to there is a certain segment of the population that has some measure of natural immunity because they've had the virus. You can look at the number of, of people who have had COVID based on official statistics. There are a number of folks and widely reported that the number of people who have actually had COVID could be two to three times that. Uh, so that's, a, that's something to focus on uh, because you, you, to, to understand to, what it, to, to the extent that the overall population has protection, you want to look at the vaccines as well as natural immunity. You know, another thing that plays into that, another question I think that, that we should be asking is, you know, what fraction of those people who have natural immunity are also getting the vaccine so we could properly calculate how many people actually have some, some uh, type of immunity from the vaccine or natural immunity. You know, as I mentioned, the 55% have one shot in the arm might be 56, 57% today. That number I mentioned is from the end of last week. But, you know, um, we're getting closer to having more of the population protected by vaccines. It is the case that with the variants, which are much more contagious, that they seem to be taking more hold or greater hold in those areas where the vaccination rates are lower. Um, so so that's, that's a concern. And 
it would seem that a solution would be to try to get the vaccination rates up in those areas. The other thing that uh, I noticed in looking at some of the reporting and some of the statistics is, uh, at least in some, some areas, uh, I saw a statistic in LA County on a particular day a week or two ago when the US number, the number of new cases in the US is 23,000 or 1,083 in LA County. And what I read is 80% of those new cases were uh, for people who are age 40 and below. So that would suggest that there may be a more, more of a vulnerability in that younger population in, in part because they may have a lower propensity to get vaccinated than older portions of the population. My understanding roughly 75, 77% of those age, age 65 and over in the US have been vaccinated so that thus to get to the 55% number much lower of those in the younger portions of the population. So that's kind of suggests some areas of focus on the vaccination front that could be helpful in the sense that the US, in the US, because we've had a, we had the initial significant surge uh, during the, when the pandemic started, another one last summer, another one in the winter, maybe another one possibly taking root now, that's of some concern. We do have some natural immunity built in. Other countries where they had put other measures in place um, may, may well have less immunity. They may well be slower in the, in the vac vaccination administration front and may be more susceptible to the variants. Um, and, and so that's, that could have a significant, because um, we, we are part of a global economy and what happens abroad has a big effect on the US. So, so that, that, that will also pose a risk to the US economy. What happens uh, in, in other places is, is, will, that will naturally have a big impact on us. Well, the COVID virus has been a, a new threat to the economy. I'd, I'd like to close uh, with a, a look at, at a pre-existing condition for the economy, and that is the unsustainable uh, chart of, of, you know, course of debt that, that, that we had pre-pandemic. The, the debt was on a, an unsustainable track over the long term. And, you know, we had to spend greatly in during the pandemic to to fight the uh, fight the pandemic and 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 help rescue the economy and now as we're coming out of that uh, we're still faced with the underlying unsustainable track that we already had and i'm wondering how you see that fitting into the post pandemic debate i mean it's not as if congress when writing new legislation is writing on a clean slate we've already got you know trillion dollar uh, annual deficits, about four to five percent of GDP baked into the cake. So wh what do you see of the, the economic and policy risks uh, on the debt side? Yeah, I, it, for, for sure. We, we've had a tremendous shock to the U.S. economy, um, the pandemic, um, you know, that the, the economy took a tremendous hit. It's re still recovering from that. And, and for sure, that that needs to be kind of the immediate focus. But as you point out, down the road, several years from now and beyond, we had a significant uh, imbalance, long-term fiscal imbalance uh, you know, within the, U you know, the federal government in terms of what it spends and what it takes in, in revenue. Um, that, that existed before the pandemic. It, it will not only will it continue to exist after the pandemic, but the spending that occurred uh, uh, because of the pandemic has made that problem worse. Um, uh, the spending uh, because the pandemic has added to the deficit, has added to the debt, 
um, held by the public. Um, and and those, with those rising debt levels, we will have higher interest costs going forward. Um, and, um, you know, the statistic that I, that, that comes immediately to top, uh, top of mind, we have roughly um, prior to the pandemic, we, uh, federal debt held by the public was about 75, 80% of GDP. Uh, it's now at about 110 percent, 105, 110 percent of GDP, and we're on a trajectory because primarily of the growth in uh, entitlement programs, to some extent Social Security, but Medicare, because the the rise in per capita healthcare growth exceeds the underlying growth in the economy to a significant degree. The rise in the spending on those entitlement programs and and the interest expense. Which is a derivative of that, you know, um, because of that, that imbalance, we have debt levels that will rise above 200% by 2050, um, 200, 210% of, of GDP. And those are very high debt levels. And at, at some point, the, the country will need to address that. And it, I think it raises uh, significant policy risk on both the spending and revenue side of, of the budget. Um, trying to address the fast pace in spending is part of a solution and addressing um, you know, revenue growth is, is a solution. It's such a big problem. Uh, the numbers are so large. It's, it's a little hard to, for some, I think, to really get their minds around it. And it's, it's a, the problem that's, that is so large that it, I think it becomes increasingly difficult to make small changes uh, and, and address um, the, the, the long-term problem. It is the case, because a lot of this is a growth rate problem, that small changes today can be impactful several decades down the road. So, so I don't want to give the misimpression that, that small changes today wouldn't be helpful. They could be helpful and perhaps very helpful. Um, but if we wait too long, uh, the changes that would have to be made to address the issue could be significant. When the Social Security Trust Fund uh, runs out of money, um, which I believe is in 2032, based on CBO projections, uh, currently is the current projection, uh, my understanding is that program has statutory authority to pay 70 or 72 cents on the dollar in terms of benefits. So that is kind of a way of, um, you know, describing the nature of the problem. And um, hopefully we, the problem will be dealt with before that. Yeah, you really make a good point that uh, the, the problem is so big, it can sometimes freeze people and uh, and you don't need to solve it all at once. I mean, you, you know, lots of, uh, you know, small changes that move in the right direction can really add up over time. And that's hopefully we can include some of those in the post pandemic recovery right. to uh uh, you know, make make for a, a longer term future that's uh, brighter than it looks at the moment. Right. So let's 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 assume that we can do that, and we'll end uh, on an optimistic note with the economy recovering and and uh, hopefully the prospect of the pandemic receding and and maybe even taking some uh, small steps to to help uh, affect the long term outlook. Bob, I want to thank you for uh, being our guest this week. It really was a terrific discussion about the economy and, and many aspects of it. Tori, as usual, thank you for uh, great questions and your wise comments. And uh, this is Bob Bixby. Uh, I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 